Welcome, friends, to this week's episode of Footsteps of the Messiah. So, uh, we will start with our customary blessing. Alright, so Parashat Devarim, we are entering into this first week of Av, so the week of Rosh Chodesh Av is when we read Parashat Devarim, the first Parashat of Deuteronomy. It falls on Av 4, 5783 on Shabbos this year, which is July 22nd, 2023. This parasha is 105 verses, and it's the first of the last, meaning it is the first parasha of the last book, and it is also read right around the first week of Av. So, it's the first of the last 11 parashiot in the Torah, and is always read as a standalone parasha. Last week or two ago, we spoke about four to five double parashiot, and the leap year and certain other dates, where certain festivals fall during the week each year, dictate what parashiot we need to double up on or read as standalone parashiot. So this section, this parasha goes from Deuteronomy 1.1 to chapter 3, verse 22. Now, before we get to our main focus, which is the Haftarah this year, 5783, Moshe goes over the entire Torah. Now, what I mean by our main focus on Footsteps of the Messiah, we're covering the weekly Haftarah, although we're missing some episodes, so our goal is before the month of Elul, which is only three weeks away, we will be all caught up for the last four weeks of the year and be publishing them be at the beginning or definitely by the middle of the week. So, uh, Devarim is Deuteronomy in English, which means second law or copy of this law. And the word Deuteronomy comes from the ancient Greek Deuteronomion, Deuteronomion. And we know nomos is the, the Greek root for law. Now, a law is not a very good translation because the Torah is not a book of laws. It is a book of teachings. It's a book of judgments, statutes, ordinances. But the word law actually only appears two times in the entire Tanakh. And that is once in Exodus, where it says a fiery law went out from Hashem. And it also appears in the book of Daniel, I believe. So, Moshe talks about the Exodus in this parsha, and the Yetziat Mimitzrayim, the Exodus from Egypt, and the whole account over the last 40 years. So he focuses on remembering and observing the Torah and keeping it as they go into Eretz Israel. He covers the lessons about assigning judges and why that was brought about, but he does not mention Yitro. Rashi, or another commentator, actually says that this was to spare Yitro any embarrassment, um, or hubris because he was quite humble and didn't want any credit. Now, all of the journeys in the desert are reviewed and the scouts sent into the land across the Jordan to tour it are, um, Moshe goes over that account, and what their negative review of the land, uh, kind of like a Siskel and Ebert version of two thumbs down, uh, then he reminds them, that led to the decree against that generation, and they'd all die in the Midbar and didn't merit to enter into Eretz Yisrael. Uh, now the question remains, and I haven't really come up with a satisfactory answer, why is he doing this, and maybe the answer is obvious, why is he doing this to the generation that has come out of the desert that is going into the land when the old generation died? 
so look for that when you read the parasha. Look for the tenses. Look if he's addressing it at you or them, the ones that died. But I think the, the simple answer is it's all a reminder. It's all a reminder that we can learn from others' mistakes. And we have imprinted on us the ways and thoughts and mannerisms and habits of our parents, of our mentors, of those who are around us, our peers even. But more than anything, those that we respect and venerate and often sadly put on pedestals um, and probably shouldn't, um, those people have bearing on us. They have the, the, the adoration has consequences. We become like them in some ways, whether we like it or not. So I think all of this is a repetition of the Torah, which is where we get the word Deuteronomy. A repetition of the Torah, even in Hebrew, they call it, um, I forget what the exact phrase is, but it's uh, Mishneh, I think, repetition. Mishneh Torah, maybe, is another name for Deuteronomy in Hebrew, which means repetition of the Torah. Well, anyway, so I think it's a reminder to learn from the past mistakes, even when we're tempted, or even on autopilot in some ways, to do them again. So then Moshe reminds them that that whole thing led to the decree against that generation, they'd all die. And they did die. And it finally ended on the ninth of Av of the 38th year from the Exodus of Egypt. Next, he recounts the events in Moab and Ammon and Sihon and Og, king of the Amorites and king of Bashan. He concludes with a message to Yehoshua and encourages him to be bold and courageous. Hashem is on the side of Israel. Now, let me correct something I just said. I said 38 years. What I meant was that... Um, from the time of the report, it was 38 years, not from the exodus of Egypt. That obviously was 40 years. So our Haftarah is from Isaiah verse 1 of chapter 1 to verse 27. Now the Haftarah is not very long, and this is a special Shabbat that is not discussed enough, in my opinion, uh, like many of the Haftarah portions. Now, it's interesting because this Shabbat is called Shabbat Chazon, and next Shabbat will be called Shabbat Nachamu, the only two Shabbats in the whole year that are called after, the, the Shabbat has a special name, and it's actually after the Haftarah. I mean, it's named so for the Haftarah, because the first word in the Haftarah this week is Chazon, and the first word in the Haftarah next week, which we'll cover next week, is Nachamu. And it's called Shabbat Nachamu next week. So, especially because this Haftarah relates to the book of Revelation in the New Testament. And so many Yeshua believers have never heard of this special Shabbat because they have never heard of the Haftarah or heard the Haftarah read in most congregations of Yeshua people or Yeshua believers. Now, I am one, but I have a lot of... Um, criticisms a lot of I find a lot missing in most messianic or uh, Yeshua believing congregations and I don't mean churches I mean what are predominantly called messianic congregations so just an aside I'm looking for a new way to refer to what we are generally called as messianic believers I feel this is like a theft of a word that pertains to all Jews and all Israelis messianic that is all of Israel whether they believe in the resurrection of Yeshua and acknowledge Yeshua as Messiah, uh, or not. All Jews are Messianic. Why do we get to use that term just for ourselves? Those of us who believe Yeshua is the Messiah, why do we get to use that term just for ourselves? That's silly. I mean, what are Jews 
who don't believe in Yeshua? Are they non-Messianic? Well, that's absurd. So I typically have said traditional or normative Judaism, but even to say non-believing Jews is somewhat pejorative because we believe in the same God, both Jews who do not accept Yeshua and his resurrection and Jews or non-Jews like myself who do believe in Yeshua and his resurrection. We all believe in the same God, the God of Abraham, Yitzchak and Yaakov, the God of the Bible, the God of the Tanakh, and the God of Israel. Okay, so back to the topic at hand. So chazon means vision or revelation. This comes from Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1. Let me get there. And it says, Chazon Yishayahu Venamotz Asher Chaze Chaza Al Yehuda Virushalayim the vision of Isaiah, or the revelation of Isaiah, the son of Amot, which he saw concerning Yehuda Yerushalayim in the days of Uzziah, Yotam, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. All right. So it ends with the the end of the the parasha. I'm going to jump around ends with Zion will be redeemed with justice and its captives with tzedakah. Now, I have a slightly different uh, translation here that says, Zion shall be redeemed through justice and her penitent through righteousness. And the word penitent, which we'll cover, is shaveha, uh, or shaveha, 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 I believe. It's a kamatz under the hay, which is a little bit irregular and does show up though once in a while. But if you know Hebrew, you know what I'm talking about. But since I'm not going to get into Hebrew today, um, then I won't go into that. But um, Rabbi Yitzi Hurwitz from Chabad in an article called The Vision of Ishayahu has some amazing insights. So he says, many think Zion is Yerushalayim and the captives in this verse are the Jews. Now, in a symbolic take on this, it is possible that Sion refers to the part of Israel that study Torah and observe the mitzvot. Now, let me take a step back. The word Sion in the Strong's Concordance is number 6726, obviously Hebrew, and it's found in a variety of places. Uh, it's found in 2 Samuel 5.7. It's also found in 1 Chronicles 11.5, 1 Kings 8.1. Second Chronicles five two, and Mika uh, three ten, uh, Amos uh, six seven, uh, or is that right? Let's see. Proper name of a location, older form according to a source. I don't understand the abbreviation. Siona, which is the directional hay at the end, meaning we're going towards Sion, and captured by David and made his residence, uh, that's where it talks about, he called it Ir David, on the southern part of east of the east of Jerusalem. Now distinct from the site of the temple, uh, not elsewhere in the narrative of Second Chronicles 5.2, but often in poets and prophets as the name of Jerusalem, and from a political point of view sometimes means its inhabitants. So that's all from Strong's. Now, the original Strong's page that they have imaged here says a sunny, a sunny place or a sunny mountain from the word Tsaha, Tsadi Hei Hei, which is, uh, 
let's see. It has some reference to Tsayach, which is Sadiyud, maybe He or Chet. I can't really tell. And it compares to the Arabic word uh, fortress. And the radical H is retained in Syriac and Arabic, which I don't read. So, but it basically says Sion is the higher and southern hill. And then, let's see if I can get it. Okay, Sion is the higher and southern hill, not the northern, as someone named Lightfoot thought. Now, on which the city of Jerusalem was built. Now, it included the more ancient part of the city with the citadel and temple, Mount Moriah, on which the temple was built, being reckoned to Zion, separated by a narrow valley, also called the city of David. Now, very often used by the prophets and poets for Jerusalem itself, and it has a bunch of references, specifically Isaiah chapter 2, chapter 8, chapter 10, chapter 33, and its inhabitants, Isaiah 127, which is part of this parasha, Isaiah chapter 49, Isaiah chapter 52, Psalm 97, and Zephaniah 3.16. They are also poetically called the daughter of Zion, Batzion, which is in our Haftarah, Isaiah 1 verse 8, as well as Isaiah chapter 10, Isaiah chapter 62. And in exile we see Isaiah chapter 49 and Zechariah chapter 2. And let's see. There's some other, Benotzion are the women of Yerushalayim, uh, and that might be Isaiah 3 and Isaiah chapter 4, and there is a lot of reference, there are a lot of references to Zion in Isaiah, and then Isaiah chapter 60. So that exhausts the Strong's entry, if you're not familiar with the Strong's Concordance, there's, there are free versions online, and it's a way of looking up without knowing Hebrew, using a number system coded to the King James Bible, you can look up any word in Hebrew through this numbering system. Uh, so James Strong, I believe his name was, was um, an amazing author and scholar of this work. And it's been a life changer. I believe it's like over 100 years old, the Strong's Concordance. All right, so uh, the... Captives are the part of Israel who are not observant, is what Rabbi Hurwitz says. So the reason they are captives is they are captives to sin and to the flesh. Now the Zionists, not meant uh, meant in a different way here from the usual term Zionist in modern parlance, those believe are the believers in the Torah. So to say, they are redeemed due to their faithfulness. The others are brought out of captivity due to tzedakah. So, Sadaka beating charity. He further says that the light is greater than the darkness, and there is a fight going on inside of each of us. Hashem's will is the greatest light possible, and it is inside of us, so it can convert the darkness to the light. Well, how is that? He, we must be like the exiles who returned to Zion, returned to observance of the Torah, and even moved to Israel if possible. Now, excuse me, Hashem's light is the light of the soul. And we see this connection to light and the mitzvot with the verse in Proverbs 6.23. And it goes like this. I'll start in verse 21. Uh, verse 20. Yeah. Uh, or verse 20. My son, comply with the mitzvot of your father, the mitzvah of your father, the commandment of your father. Do not ignore the teaching or of your mother. Bind them continually on your heart. Tie them around your neck. I'm not reading in Hebrew, so I'm assuming the word commandment here is mitzvah of your father and the Torah of your mother, because it says teaching. 
bind them continually on your neck and when you walk they will guide you when you sleep they will watch over you and when you awake they will talk to you now here's the verse i was talking about 623 for the mitzvah is a lamp ki ner mitzvah v'torah ol for the commandment is a lamp and the teaching is a light and rebukes for discipline are the way of life to keep you from the evil woman from the smooth tongue of the foreign woman do not desire her beauty in your heart nor let her capture you with her eyelids for the price of a prostitute reduces one to a loaf of bread and an adulteress hunts for a precious life and then it goes into fire no one can touch fire without being burned now this applies to all people not just men and it's not just about a physical temptation or the temptation specifically of fornication. This is what the Yetzirahara looks like for us all. It is a battle of sensuality. It's a battle of forbidden lust and desires. It's a battle against our base natures and our animal neshama, our animal soul. So... Uh, also, Psalm 119, verse 105 says, let me read it straight out of the psalm. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Very famous Amy Grant song um, about this verse. Uh, now, the word, uh, the Devar, the Torah, is a lamp. And it also lights the path. Which, if you're in a, on a dark path and you have a flashlight... It's not going to illuminate everything. It's just enough so you can see the next few steps, which is a lot of what Hashem does in our life. He gives us an assignment for the next few steps. He says, do this first, and then I'll give you more. Now, Yeshua also said this very same thing or something similar in Matthew 5. He said in Matthew 5, verse 13, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its flavor, where, where will it regain its saltiness or in king james wherewith shall it be salted how do you salt salt right you can't it is therefore good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men now you are the light of the world a city that is set on a hill cannot be hid neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel but on a candlestick or a menorah and it gives light to all that are in the house let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. So he tells us what light is. It's mitzvot, good works, is the way they said in the New Testament, the Greek, to perform mitzvot and glorify your Father which is in heaven. So that should tell those of us who did not grow up Jewish or understanding mitzvot that good works are not just helping old people across the street or, um, you know, trying to... to um, help a lost dog find its way home. I mean, those are good things, but specifically, those are already in the mitzvot. This is talking about the 613 mitzvot in the Torah. And then he makes a very famous statement. Think not that I come to destroy the Torah or the Nevi'im. Those are two parts of the Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Now, why didn't he say... Or the writings, I don't know. Maybe he did, and it wasn't included here for some reason. But he obviously wanted to draw their attention to the Torah and the prophets. And I think we see at the end of, I believe it's the book of maybe Luke or Matthew, where 
he actually shows himself in the Psalms, and he's constantly quoting Psalms throughout his life, uh, illustrating how he was fulfilling prophecy from the Psalms. So he says, I have come not to destroy the Torah or the Nevi'im. I am not I have not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, or certainly uh, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass, one yod or one uh, crown shall in no way pass from the Torah till all be fulfilled. Now, you have to know Hebrew to understand this, and the decorative, uh, the decorative le uh, seven letters receive a decorative crown when they're written in formal Hebrew on a Torah scroll. Now he goes further, whosoever shall break one of these least mitzvot. Now that shows me there's a, a little, there, there's there's a least of the mitzvot. It says, whoever shall teach, sorry, let me read the whole thing, then I'll go back. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever shall do then them and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So, there is a least commandment, there's a great commandment, and it's prophesied that there will be a, there will be teachers, there will be people who don't do them, who purposely break them, and teach others that you should break them. We have that today. We've had that for 2,000 years. It's called Christianity, by and large. Or they acknowledge them, but they don't teach people to do them. They say, oh, you can see Jesus in these. You can see Yeshua in these. That's prophetic. But... They still don't teach people how to observe them so that they can learn themselves. It's just like a, a Cliff Notes version. So that's ridiculous and absurd. But, hey, at least it's a step in the right direction. It's better than saying, well, the Sabbath was changed to Sunday and we're replacing Passover with Easter. I mean, that's really anti-Semitic. So um, we also see in First John something similar. This then is the message of First John uh, chapter 1, verse 5. This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not say the truth. But if we walk in the light and as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Yeshua HaMashiach, the Son, is cleanses us from all sin. Now, I really like this in chapter 2, verse 4, uh, or actually in chapter 2, verse 2. He is the propitiation, the atonement for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world, and whereby we do not know that we know him. Oh, and hereby we do know that we know him sorry hereby we do know that we know in verse 3 if we keep his meets vote is he talking about god or is he talking about yeshua is he talking about both he that says i know him and keeps not his does not keep his meets vote is a liar and the truth is not in him but whoever keeps his word meaning yeshua who was the word became flesh who was the messiah who was the agent of hashem the father but who keeps his word in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby now, or know we that are, this King James is difficult sometimes. Hereby know we that we are in him. Hereby we know that we are in him. He that says he abides in him ought himself also so to walk 
even as Yeshua. I added the word Yeshua. He walked. Brethren, I write no new mitzvah unto you, but an old mitzvah, which you had from the beginning. The old mitzvah is the word, or the previous mitzvah, is the word which you have heard from the beginning. Again, a new mitzvah I write to you, which thing is true in him. Now, he's not talking about making up a 614th commandment. He's, you can't do that, and he was a Torah-observant Jew. So we know he's talking about um, a new instruction, a new charge of how to see the mitzvot and how to apply them to life and in light of Yeshua's arrival and ascension. So again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness has passed and the true light now shines. He says that he is in the light and hates his brother. Oh, he that says he's in the light and hates his brother is in darkness even until now. He that loves his brother abides in the light, and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. But he that hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and knows not whether he goes because that darkness has blinded his eyes. I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. Now you got to remember, at this point in time, they may not have had a chance to read all of the Gospels or all of the Epistles or maybe any of them. So this may be the only, only letter that they've received. I, I don't know. I'd have to look at who he was writing to. So anyway, it goes on and it elaborates on what the message of Yeshua was, how to overcome the world, how to overcome temptation, and to give them hope, uh, much like this Haftarah is. So uh, now back to the Haftarah. So the Neshama, the soul, is along for the ride, according to Rabbi Yitzhi Hurwitz. Uh, but the body works out the salvation with fear and trembling. Now that's my addition, and I ask, how can a soul tremble when the soul and spirit are directly from God? So let's look at a verse that's also very famous from the New Testament about working out your salvation with fear and trembling. So this is from the book of Philippians chapter 2. And it's in verse 12, but I'm going to read a little bit before. So, chapter 2, verse 6. Uh, let's see, chapter 2, verse... Uh, let's see, nine. how about 9? Wherefore God also has highly exalted him, meaning Yeshua, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Yeshua every knee should bow, and things of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. Now every knee should bow. That's a familiar phrase from a prayer that we pray um, two to three times a day called Aleinu. And I think it is morning, uh, afternoon, and evening. It's in at the end of the service and it's called Aleinu. And that every tongue should confess that Yeshua the Messiah is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Wherefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own Yeshua, your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, again, with the lights of the world holding forth the word of life, that I may join in the day of Messiah, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. So he's really saying here that salvation is the gift 
of, and I'm drawing this from other passages too, is the gift of faith. And we see that in Romans 4, which references Lech Lecha and Abraham, who was credited to having been, to, to be righteous for his belief in God, for his faith in God, um, that was before he was circumcised. But in, in this passage, we also see that you have to work through your salvation which is really kind of the Jewish concept of tikkun, that you have to make corrections, you have to make uh, amend, um, you have to make things right for the things you've done in the past once you become a believer. Okay, let's jump back to the Torah portion. So, interestingly as well, Rabbi Itzi points out in this article that the name Yeshayahu has within it and comes from the name Yeshua or as he puts it, the word Yeshua, which means redemption. Now, I disagree. Although redemption is similar, the word Yeshua actually means primarily salvation. If you put the word redemption into a Hebrew translator online or go to a dictionary, the word you get is Geulah, with an Aleph. Now, amazingly, there is a deep teaching about the Aleph in the word Geulah, and that is that the Aleph of Adonai, or Hashem himself, is added to the word Gola. The word Gola means exile so there is only a one letter difference the first letter um, of the aleph bet aleph with a gematria value of just one so just one step just one letter that represents hashem and messiah who is the first aleph the letter the letter aleph and also the last the tav um, but just one letter, the Aleph, gets us from Gola, if you add it to the word Gola, add Aleph to Gimel Vav Lamed He, which means exile, okay? Without the Aleph, you add Aleph, and you get the word Geula, which is redemption. Now, back to the main point. I never saw this before, but thank you, Rabbi Yitzhi Hurwitz. Now, Yeshayahu is a predecessor and a picture of Yeshua the Messiah himself. My words, not Rabbi Hurwitz. Uh, I'm just extrapolating. Uh, you know, Yeshua is like Isaiah because they both brought a message of Yeshua in their names alone, which means uh, salvation is of the Lord. If you say it, the full name, Yeshayahu. And if you say Yeshua, it simply means salvation. Because remember, he gave up his deity. He was not God. He didn't have the same powers or title or uh, official level like it says in philippians um which we actually just read and the passage i'm talking about is right before um the passage i just read in philippians 2 um saying that i still have it up in front of me philippians 2 5 let this mind be in you which was also in messiah yeshua who being in the form of god thought it not robbery to be equal with god but made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Okay, so, uh, now, both of them were martyred. Both Yeshua and Yeshayahu, Isaiah, were murdered. And Isaiah, historically, according to some sources that we're going to look at right now, was actually sawn in half. Now, if you go to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 37 to 38, it's like called the Hebrews Hall of Fame. It says um, that these giants of the faith, my words, not the Bible, 
were stoned to death, sawed in half, and killed with swords. They went around in sheepskins and goatskins. They were needy, oppressed, and mistreated. The world wasn't worthy of them. They wandered in deserts, mountains, caves, and holes in the ground. Hebrews 11, verse 37 to 38. Now, apparently the context of Hebrews 11 is... Uh, you know, whole Hall of Fame of Faith, which is something I heard from one of my teachers. Uh, the wandering in the caves and the holes reminds us of the scene where Ovadia uh, took the persecuted, um, one, the righteous that didn't bend their knee to Baal and hid them from Jezebel. So who is the author of Hebrews 11 referring to possibly? Now, when they spoke about being stoned to death, sawed in half and killed with swords, we're going to take a look at that. Um, and let's see what the answer is. This is from a website called hermeneutics.com. So the reference about being sawn asunder refers to a tradition about when King Manasseh ordered the prophet Isaiah to be cut in half. Now there's a tradition reported in the martyrdom of Isaiah, which is a Christian text from around uh, 100 common era which expands on 2 Kings 21, where Isaiah was condemned to death by King Manasseh. Now, although he hid in a tree, he was found, and the tree with Isaiah inside was sawn in half. And a similar tradition is recorded in a text called Lives of the Prophets from around the same time. And the method of Isaiah's death is also supported by the Jewish text of the Babylonian Talmud and the Jerusalem Talmud, both written after 200 Common Era. Now, it says, It is related in the Talmud that Rabbi Shimon ben Azai found in Jerusalem an account wherein it was written that Manasseh killed Isaiah. Manasseh said to Isaiah, Moshe, your master, said, There shall no man see God and live, but you have said, I saw the Lord seated upon his throne. Isaiah chapter 6 verse 1 and went on to point out other contradictions, as between Deuteronomy 4, verse 7, and Isaiah uh, 55, verse 6, and between Exodus 33, 26, and 2 Kings 22, verse 6. Isaiah thought, I know that King Manasseh will not accept my explanations. Why should I increase his guilt? Isaiah then uttered the unpronounceable name. A cedar tree opened, and Isaiah disappeared within it. Then Manasseh ordered the cedar to be sawn asunder, and when the saw reached his mouth, Isaiah died. Thus was he punished for having said, I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. A somewhat different version of this legend is given in the Yerushalmi Talmud, Sanhedrin 10. According to that version, Isaiah feared Manasseh, hid himself in a cedar tree, but his presence was betrayed by the fringes of his garment, meaning the tzitzit. And Manasseh caused the tree to be sawn in half. A passage of the Targum to Isaiah, quoted by Yolowich, uh, I guess a German author, and it quotes a German book here, Die Himmel Farat und Vision des Prophets Jesajas. I don't know if that's, it's got to be German states that when Isaiah fled from his pursuers and took refuge in the tree, and the tree was sawn in half, the prophet's blood spurted forth. From Talmudic circles, the legend of Isaiah's martyrdom was transmitted to the Arabs. Okay, so that's all I've got in that. And the irony is that Manasseh had carved idols and placed them in the temple. 
and the forbidden actions of, a, of carving a forbidden idol are in Exodus 20, verse 4, and carving the prophet of God, 1 Chronicles 16, 22, is too terrifying not to mention. So in other words, he carved idols, and he also carved Isaiah himself by putting a saw through his body. Pretty awful. So, the Haftarah is sending this message. During this three weeks of darkness, the time between the straits and the three weeks of admonition, the three weeks that are also called the, the negativity, uh, the time of negativity from 17 Tammuz to 9 Av, meaning 17th of Tammuz to the 9th of Av, which is coming up here in about uh, seven days, six, six days, uh, by focusing on what you personally can do to connect with Hashem, ask how can I individually improve to take one step closer to redemption and out of exile from Hashem and the Messiah. You work your way out of exile. We work our way out of exile. Now what is exile, if not distance from Israel, from Yerushalayim, from the temple, and from Hashem, the Creator Himself? Well, we got to ask, what brings us back? The meets vote bring us back. Find more time or put forth more energy to do at least one more mitzvah, even if it is and especially if it is how you treat your fellow human beings. So start at home. Start with the people closest to you. Then try with someone you moderately know. And then before Tisha B'Av, try with someone you may not even like at all. Or at least someone you do not know. Make it challenging for yourself. Ask Hashem to give you direction. So during this time, we can experience our own hazon, our own vision for Yeshua and what He, the Messiah, has begun um, now, the work he has begun in us with the deposit of the Ruach HaKodesh. Um, we can have a vision of what Hashem wants to accomplish in us and in our very lives. Uh, Ephesians says in chapter 1, verse 11 through 14, that we are given the Holy Spirit as a deposit. So Ephesians 1, 11 through 14 says, In him, in Yeshua, we also have obtained an inheritance. Having And that's an agency thing. Like, he was agent for God, and he became an agent for us when he gave up his deity. He couldn't be both at the same time. He couldn't be an agent for God and an agent for us. So when he gave up his deity, gave up all of his superpowers, let's say, to be sort of crass about it, but gave up all of his supernaturalness and became still somewhat physically empowered, manifesting miracles. But... Uh, he had to become an agent for, for the bride so that he could die on our behalf. So in him, in Yeshua, we also have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things in accordance with the plan of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in the Messiah would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your Yeshua, your salvation, having also believed... You were sealed in him with this Holy Spirit of the promise, who is a first installment, a deposit of our inheritance in regard to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. That is a Rosh Hashanah uh, theme. So the Rosh Hashanah connection probably is because Shoal wrote this letter to the congregation in Ephesus for the Yamim Noraim. Days of Awe from Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur. So fascinatingly enough, this chapter is laced with Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur references, as well as in Isaiah chapter 1. And let me explain why. And there are other versions that are not King James that have the themes of um, Rosh Hashanah 
in them in Ephesians 1, but it's kind of beyond the scope of of this teaching. But, you know, talking about power and dominion and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, just uh, among other things. And then at the very end of the chapter, Ephesians 1, 22, uh, says, And he put all things in subjection under his feet and made him head, rosh, over all things to the congregation, to the kehilah, to the adah, to the witness, which is another way to say congregation, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And what does a man give to his wife, and what does a wife give to her husband? Their bodies. When? After they're married, and Rosh Hashanah is the marriage of Israel to Hashem, or the Messiah to his bride. All right, so, and that's coming up in about a month and a half with, you know, Rosh Hashanah is right around the corner this year. All right, so, um, fascinatingly enough, this, uh, and specifically, this famous scripture about one of the miracles that occurred all the way up until 33 Common Era is called the Tongue of Scarlet, is referenced in Isaiah 1, verse 18. And we'll end with this. Let me read that verse to y'all. Come now, let us debate, says the Lord. Lehuna ve nivacha yomel adunaim yihyu hata echem kashanim kasheleg yalbinu im yadimu kachatola kachemel yihyu. Come now, let us debate, says the Lord. If your sins prove to be like crimson, they will become white as snow. If they prove to be as red as crimson dye, they shall be as wool. Now, Rashi points out that the phrase, as crimson dye, um, in that phrase is the word for, uh, for worm, tola, and the dye which they dye fabrics red with, or kernels, each one of which had a worm inside. Now, if we look at Psalm 22, Verses 7 through 8, it says in Hebrew, Anochi tola'at, I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of man despised by peoples. So Yeshua became a worm to be crushed and become the scarlet dye himself. It continues on and is seen by many to be a prophetic psalm about the death and the type of murder that Yeshua would endure as the Messiah at the hands of both Jews and Gentiles. For instance, the lion could be the Jews of Judah at that time, and the dogs, referenced in Psalm 22, could be the Gentiles, the Romans. Now, we never like to finish without reminding you that salvation, Yeshua, is only one step away. If you are not bound in faith to the God of Israel by way of the life, crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of Yeshua, our Messiah, we invite you to pray now, today, and begin a life of salvation and peace and freedom from sin. Please write to our email address for any questions or comments or suggestions at footstepsofthemessiah at gmail.com. And we wish you shalom, and with God's help, we'll be here next week. Thank you.